You're listening to a Platforms podcast, your source for cutting-edge relevant Torah. Enjoy. Good evening, everyone. It's a totally wonderful experience to be here in person and uh, doing a share with all of you. Uh, it's also been great meeting with so many of you and <clears throat> discovering that uh, you're all having a very positive, growing experience in yeshiva. And... Um, very happy to continue uh, some of the discussions that we've had, new relationships that we began, and I'm hoping that uh, tonight you're going to get some appreciation for the Torah and the way that the Torah teaches us so much about how to live, and specifically as it relates to parenting, uh, to re- as it relates to love in general, and to responsibility. I'm going to do a little bit of a departure from my normal, let's just call it the style uh, of analyzing just simply based on questions and then giving a thematic answer. I would like tonight to kind of set the stage in a few different ways. First of all, very important and critical questions that many of us deal with, uh, even at your young tender age is related to parenting. Very often we have a question of, have we been positively or negatively affected by our parents? And then we get older and begin to wonder, are we living up to certain standards of the ways that our parents taught us, the way that they dealt with us? As you get older, you have children of your own, you begin to compare what you do, what your parents did, and questions that really haunt a lot of people are, are they reacting based on an upbringing that they've had? Are they overdoing, overemphasizing to get away from you know, the way that they feel that they were treated? Or maybe simply not even living up to as well as their parents raised them? And maybe even a more critical question is the question of love in general. A question that parents very often have is, am I loving my children correctly? Am I loving my spouse correctly? And vice versa, we wonder about the other side of it. And of course, the famous question, what is the proper balance of love and discipline when it comes to parenting? And again, how does my upbringing relate to all of that? How am I dealing with my nuclear family based on the way that I was raised? Now, the reason that I preface it with all these questions is because I feel like it's so important to approach Torah with an understanding that the Torah is there to give us help, insight, wisdom, dealing with what are really common, fundamental, critically important questions. That's number one. Number two, in a couple minutes, we're going to go through the first 15 sentences of the parasha, and we're going to point out various things related to the topic topics that we just raised. But I want to give another introduction, first by giving a little overall synopsis of the story before we go into the psukim, and then by really giving foundational approach that I think is markedly different than the way that we typically approach the parsha, or at least make certain decisions about how we want to approach the parsha. The classic being, 
if Yitzchak and Rivka ever talk to each other. Uh, they seem to not really know necessarily what's going on with the other. And so I want to approach that question, but first let's do the synopsis. Right? Mostly, we know that Yitzchak at age 40 marries Rivka, and approximately 20 years later has Yaakov and Esav. And at that point, Rivka becomes pregnant before the birth, and she's in tremendous pain. Why, why am I? Which is a question we're going to get to. So she seeks information from HaKadosh Baruch Hu as to what's going on with her, and finds out that there are two nations, they're going to go there seemingly separate ways, and that's supposed to give her some sort of understanding of what's happening with her, and seemingly she has no more questions. The children are born, they're named in an interesting way, again we'll get to that, and then Yaakov is a man of the tents, Esav is a man of the fields, a man that hunts, and ultimately what happens is that Yaakov gives Esav soup in exchange for the birthright when Esav is famished and exhausted, and that's sort of the end of that part of the story. But later, the sort of conclusion of that story is that Yitzchak decides to give Esav the brachos. Rivka encourages Yaakov to go take the brachos instead of Esav. Yitzchak gives Yaakov the brachos, seemingly not clearly aware if it's Yaakov or Esav, which again we'll get to a little bit. And bottom line is Yaakov ends up with the brachos. Esav ends up hating Yaakov, wants to kill him. And Yaakov has to run away. Now, that's the story in a nutshell. So it seems that there's a lot of dysfunction happening. We know that, according to Chazal, for sure, Esav is not a uh, simple person, meaning uh, he's not a person to be trifled with. He's a hunter. He, on the day that the Vamavinu died, which is the day of the selling of the Bechorah, he did terrible Averos, Bolonamarasa. Uh, very, very not simple things, but Yitzchak still decides to give Esav a bracha. Uh, what about the Rav Ya'avot Sa'ir? What about the fact that HaKadosh Baruch Hu said that the older is going to serve the younger? That doesn't even seem to play into the equation. And even if you want to say, well, that's something that Rivka didn't share with Yitzchak, why? And on top of that, at the moment that Rivka knows that Yitzchak is about to give uh, Esav the brachos. That's the time for Rivka to go bursting in there, uh, a la David HaMelech, I should say Bathsheba, bursting into David HaMelech and saying, hey, you promised Loma Melech is going to be the king. You know, Adonio is taking over. you got to take action. How can you give Esav the brachos? It doesn't make any sense. So this is all part of the dysfunction. So typically these types of questions roll around in our minds. And we have a sort of befuddled approach. We don't know what to really think. We don't know what to really believe. So I want to start from, like I said, a foundational approach that suggests the following. The Torah clearly describes in the end of last week's parasha the love that Yitzchak has for Rivka. Everybody know what I'm talking about? Right? He took Rivka as a wife, he loved her, and Yitzchak was comforted after his mother's death. Let's just think about that for a second. Whether that happened when Rivka was 3 or 13, it's about how old Rivka was, 
whether the love happened, you know, you want to say love at first sight. I don't think that's Pashat on the Pasuk because the Torah says he married her first and then he loved her. So it's seemingly a product of the marriage for 10, 13, whatever age you want to say she is, that Yitzchak loves her, he loves her. But it's not only that he loves her. The Torah is very clear that he's a replacement for his mother. So let's talk about Sarah and Yitzchak for a minute. Do we think that Yitzchak and Sarah had a dysfunctional relationship? Do we have any reason to believe that there was a strangeness in the relationship between Yitzchak and Sarah? There's zero reason in Psukim or in Chazal to think that Yitzchak and Rivka were anything but close. Moreover, we do know that certainly some Shatim and Chazal, or Vayihi Yuchai Sarah, is Vayihi was Gematria 37, because the 37 years of Sarah's life that counted were the, were the years that Yitzchak was alive. Because she lived from 90 to 127 when Yitzchak was alive. So very clearly Sarah is attached to Yitzchak. And could anybody imagine anything but that? Everybody is going to just rejoice for me that I finally have a son. And she kicks Yishmael out because there's just no reason to believe that Yitzchak and Sarah are anything but super close. So if you're going to tell me that Rivka is somehow a replacement of Sarah, she brings back all the brachos of Sarah's Ohel, like Rashi tells us, can we think of the relationship between Yitzchak and Rivka on anything less than a paragon level? Is it possible to think that, well, maybe they didn't really see eye to eye, maybe they weren't really bonded, maybe they really didn't communicate? And that's just the beginning. Let's remember, as we mentioned last week, that Yitzchak has decided he's not going to marry anyone else, even though his father is very concerned that Yitzchak shouldn't die without children. He's not going to marry anyone else but Rivka. He waits three years to marry her. He waits 10 years before she can become pregnant. He waits another 10 years, presuming that she will become pregnant and have a child. And after that, he's mispalal, according to Rashi, doesn't want to marry a shifcha because <clears throat> it's not right for Yitzchak. He's totally invested in Rivka. So the entire child-producing era of their marriage is for sure bonded. They decide to dive in together. Okay, you want to say it's in opposite corners? Or you want to know if there's a mechitza? Well, what's the issue? L'chara, they were totally on the same page. So we're going to say that everything leading up to the birth of Yaakov and Esav are on the same page, but suddenly they're divided. Philosophically, only, only Yitzchak loves Esav and only Rivka loves Yaakov. It just doesn't make any sense. So I therefore reject the idea that there's some kind of discord or different approach in parenting that Yitzchak and Rivka have towards Yaakov and Esav. I believe that it was 100% collaborative and that everything they did was calculated strategically together. That's my foundation. Now, based on this, we obviously have many questions. We're going to go through the Pesukim in a minute. First of all, why does the Torah only describe the love that Yitzchak has for Esav as opposed to the love that Yitzchak has for Yaakov? Does anybody want to raise their hand and suggest that Yitzchak did not love Yaakov? He didn't like the fact that he was learning? He was learning too many years in yeshiva? Anybody want to really take that notion seriously? That maybe, you know what, maybe Yitzchak didn't really love Yaakov. Is that possible? Then, do we really think that Rivka doesn't love Esav. Now, you want to ask me a kashi, you can ask me, okay, how can anybody love Esav? Fine. But the Torah says, beferish, that, that, that Yitzchak is loving Esav. So, obviously, a parent's love for a child is very strong, 
regardless of who their child is. And so therefore we have to ask, why is the Torah only describing the love that Yitzchak has for Esav and only the love that Yaakov, that Rivka has for Yaakov and not vice versa? Right? That becomes the question. Number two, why does Yitzchak select Esav for the brachos? Right? At the end of the day, like we mentioned, Viravya Avotzair doesn't seem like, uh, hey, you know what? Let's give the bracha to the older one. Viravya Avotzair sounds like the younger one somehow is supposed to be in charge. And Yitzchak Avinu says very, very clearly, Hein Givir Samti When Esav asks, hey, Tati, don't you have a bracha for me? He says, what can I do? I already put the other one in charge. So you can't tell me that the bracha is not putting him in charge. You can't tell me that. Right? So what's the pshat that Yitzchak is giving the brachos to Esav? And then lastly, clearly Yitzchak is not certain who's in front of him. From a dozen examples, let's just use two of the most obvious ones. He asks him who he is. And then he declares, Akol kol Yaakov, And the Torah says, Beferish velohi kiro, right? The Torah says he didn't recognize him, but he is obviously uncertain. Now, hopefully, a lesson that we're not learning from the parsha is when you're really unsure about something majorly important, jump in anyways. Do it anyways. Ignore prudence. At the end of the day, couldn't Yitzchak say, wait a second. Let's get both boys here, and then I'll give the brachos. Wouldn't that be the simplest, most obvious thing to do? Right? So how can we begin with saying that this makes sense. It just seemingly doesn't make sense for Yitzchak to go give the brachas after he self-declared. He doesn't know who's in front of him. It seems nearly impossible to understand. Okay, so those are three questions. I'll come back and mention those questions again, but let's just go through the psukim for two minutes. For some reason, the Torah is talking about Avraham when we're talking about what Yitzchak is doing in terms of giving birth. And the whole thing is strange because normally we would expect that when the Torah to- tells us the toledos, it's not going back to the grandfather. But over here, it's very clearly saying, Avraham Holidas Yitzchak. And after this story, the Torah gives us more information about Avraham, and really the next whole story is Yitzchak redigging the wells that Avraham dug. So somehow, the toledos of Yitzchak are Avraham Holidas Yitzchak, which is the first indicator, and in general, we have a discussion of Avraham. Then we have this whole idea that Yitzchak and Rivka are davening, and Hashem answers Yitzchak and not Rivka. And the response is, Hashem answers, and there are suddenly kids inside of Rivka, struggling, fighting, running, whatever it is, and she says, Lama Anochi. Now to me, I'll share with you something personal, Lama Anochi takes on a whole new meaning to me that I never was able to fully appreciate. Lama Anochi, Ramban brings a couple of shots in, one of them is his own, Ibn Ezra, Rashi, Rashi says, Lama Anochi. Why am I davening so much for pregnancy and giving birth? Why, why am I doing, if this is what it is, why am I davening so much? So to me, that's also a difficult kasha to understand. Because she's in pain, she's asking, why is it that I became pregnant? It always bothered me. You know, at the end of the day, people that are dying to be pregnant and suffering for 20 years are usually willing to live with whatever the difficulties are in the pregnancy or in the child raising because they finally have what they've been, you know, begging for and they're usually able to handle it. So that by itself is a question. Ramban really says, why do I exist? Lama no, it's so painful. What's going on over here? Ibn Ezra says, why is my pregnancy different than any other pregnancy? Okay, but this is the question. So 
because she has a question, she somehow thinks that, she, that, oh, you know what? I have a good idea. Let me go ask God. Let me, let me, everybody who had a question about why something was happening in their life just went to shame and said, you know, shame, why is this happening in my life? So that itself is surprising. But the personal thing that I want to share with you is that according to my wife, who, as all of you know, recently broke and dislocated and broke her hip, the, she was on a mountain for about two hours until they could get her off the mountain from the trail where she was down to the bottom of the mountain into the ambulance and then another 45 minutes to the hospital. It was, it was basically eight hours from the time until actually being able to relocate the hip. She told me, and she's one qualified to testify to this, that the pain of childbirth paled in comparison to what she suffered before she actually was able to get uh, medication and a hip relocation. In other words, childbirth was so much easier. And Baruch Hashem, she has, she is able to testify to that. And by the way, one of her children was like a three-day labor. Um, and she said, there was just no comparison. It, you know, put it on any scale of exponential that you want. It was much worse. And I'm proud to say, I never heard the question of Lama Zeh from her. So what are we talking about? Really, what are we talking about? It, the Rifka's pain was like a hundred times worse than the hip dislocation. It is a, the, the thing doesn't make sense. So we really have to understand what is Rifka's question of Lama Zanochi. So we mentioned several of the other questions. Let me just mention this one. Does it make sense that somebody comes in for a bowl of soup and, and they're desperate? I get it. Um, I'm sure some of you have had roommates in a similar fashion. I need those chips. I need that soda. I need, I'm sure some of you have had that situation. But nobody ever said, you know, I have an idea. Give me your car. Uh, give me $10,000. Give me something really valuable, and then you can have a bag of chips. He wants a bowl of soup. Oh, perfect. Some of your birthright. I mean, that's literally the next words out of his mouth, right? Asa says, it's like a joke. I mean, seriously? And he goes for it. I mean, that's like even the more incredible thing. Nobody accuses Ace of, of being a moron. Right? We have, you know, you could talk about Achashverosh. We have our characters or caricatures of people that are just stupid. We have that in Chazal or in Tanakh. But nobody ever accused Ace of being an idiot. So Yaakov's proposal seems beyond fantastic, and Esau's acceptance seems way beyond that. So how are we supposed to understand what's happening between Yaakov and Esau? Also, one last interesting ha'ara is that, really, I noticed it this year for the first time, Yaakov says, sell me your Bechara. So I'm just curious to know, without looking in a Chumash, which, you know, I see that for most of you, I don't have to worry about that. Um, without looking in a chumash, what do you think happens? Yesa says what? What does Yesa say? Yaakov says, okay, sell me your, you want soup? Sell me your bachara. What does Yesa say? Anybody? I'm going to die. Perfect. Okay, so what does Yaakov say? So what does I'm going to die mean? Sure, right? Sure. Yeah, I don't need this. It's yours. So what, is, what does Yaakov do? Does Yaakov immediately buy the bachara? Makes him swear. Makes him swear that what, in one minute he's going to sell him the Bechara? 
I mean, you, you got this big, what they call a whale on the line, right? You, you got this total sucker on the line. You're going to get something major for Bupkis. It's even a better deal than Pennsylvania, maybe, right? And at the end of the day, you say, wait, 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 swear. What are you doing? Making him rethink? Pull out the soup. Done. Whatever the transaction is that they did. What's the idea that Yaakov is asking Esav to swear first? Everybody hear the question? Yes? Okay. So the three major, so to speak, questions that we're dealing with is why does the Torah describe only the love that Yitzchak has for Esav and the love that Rivka has for Yaakov and not vice versa? Surely both parents love both children. Why does Yitzchak select Esav as the one to receive the brachos? And we have the the prophecy to contend with Rabbi Avot Sa'ir. And then lastly, Yitzchak doesn't know who's in front of him. He's not sure. Get sure. Don't just say, oh, let me go for it. So in order to begin, I would like to begin just with a, a premise that says that the purpose and let's say the job of every person is to recognize who they are Call it self-identify, clarify what your purpose, what your mission is, and choose to undertake it and fulfill it. That's every person's job. Every person has to come to understand themselves, understand their role, their purpose, so to speak, in the world, and they have to choose to undertake it, which is a big deal, because not everybody wants to do the things that they're meant to do, and everybody has to actually do it. Right? One thing to undertake it is another thing to carry it out and to implement it. So, I believe that the name of the parasha is not coincidental, and you know that the theme told us is one that we've been discussing the last couple of weeks, starting with uh, the Chazal about the 12 Toldos, and Toldos Shemayi and Toldos Terach, and you mentioned them, and this week is Parsha's Toldos, and we know that this is really the beginnings of Kuala Yisrael. Now, a very interesting point is that Esav was never kicked out of Klal Yisrael. Was Esav ever ousted from Klal Yisrael? We know that Yishmael was kicked out of the house. We know the Torah says very clearly, But when was Esav actually rejected from being part of Am Yisrael? It's true, it's part of Kivi Yitzchak, Yikar El Chazara, not through all of Yitzchak. But how did that happen? Because after all, Esau's parents are the same as Yitzchak's parents, as uh, same as Yaakov's parents. So what makes it that Esau is not part of Kal Yisrael? And the answer is in that definition that we just said. In order for a person to actually be who they are, they have to undertake to fulfill the responsibilities of that identity. And that's what Esau did not do. Esau refused to undertake the responsibility of the person that he was meant to be. He refused. One example is in the Bechorah. Another example, Chazal tell us, is that the B'nai Esav, when Esav left Eretz Yisrael, they wanted to avoid what Avram Avinu was told in the Brisbane Absarim, the Geriyah and that they're going to be enslaved for 400 years. Esav wanted to have nothing to do with that. And even later, when they meet up with Esav, Chalisol makes reference, we, we took your responsibility in being the Avadim, at least let us walk through your land. Esav doesn't care. So what I'm first putting forth is an understanding 
that the chasaron of Esav is in choosing to not be responsible to his identity. <clears throat> okay. Therefore, what's really happening in Parsha's Toldos is the Torah is doing a tremendous job at describing to us parents helping their children understand who they are and choose to take responsibility for who they are. That's really what's happening in this parsha. This is a lesson 101 on how parents are supposed to interact with children. And it's also a lesson to parents that even if you do the best parenting job in the world, you don't control your children's free choice. And Asav does not remain a part of Polyshow by his choosing. He was never kicked out. He was absolutely never kicked out. He was living at home all the years. He decided to go to, <coughs> to uh, Edom. <coughs> he decided to go to a different country. We know for a fact that he was living at home with his wives who were Oda Avodazar. He was there all the years. And he was never kicked out. So the reality is that the Torah is telling us that even with a great parenting, which we're going to talk about what the parenting was momentarily, it doesn't necessarily yield the result that the parents want. And lest you think that Esav was not a reflection of his parents, Rashi tells us Beferish and Parshas Vayishlach that the reason that the Torah hides the death of Rivka is because people would start talking about woe is Rivka for having given birth to Esav. And this is years later. This is when Yaakov himself is, you know, close to 100 years old. So the reality is that for all the years, <clears throat> Yitzchak and Rivka and Esav and Yaakov are a family. They are an absolute family. Despite all of Esav's horrible chesronos, the reality is that he was part of the family and he was never, ever rejected by his parents. Here's a fascinating point. When most of us think of a love <clears throat> of a parent to a child, I think most of us think of the child-rearing years, right? Because that's when there's all the time spent together. That's when there's all the opportunities of bonding. We think about, okay, how did our parents love us from age 0 to 20? Ballpark. Well, the Torah never says over here about those years in terms of the love of Rivka or the love of Yitzchak. Because the Torah first identifies that Yaakov is an Ishtam Yosheh Valhalin, Esav is an Ishtayid Yodeya Sada, and then the Torah tells us Yitzchak loved Esav and Rivka loved Yaakov, which means the Torah is not describing the quote unquote love that they have for their children when their children are young. Because guess what? That's not what matters the most. That's like very natural. I think we all experience this. Of course, we feel very close to our parents when we're living with our parents all the time and they give us things all the time and we're automatically taken care of by them all the time. That's, that is when, there's, I'm not saying that there's never any strife, don't get me wrong, but I'm saying that is when the natural love is felt very clearly. But what the Torah is really describing over here is the love that parents need to give to their children after their children grow up and after their children self-identify. The Torah is very clear. He Esav Ish, so he's a man. What kind of man? You're there outside. Ish, again, he's a man. What kind of man? A man of the field. And Yaakov, what kind of a man is he? Ish Tam, Yosheva Halim. Then the Torah tells us 
which means Torah is telling us that strategically they decided, my opinion, they decided that in order for Esav to possibly use his kohos properly, he needed Yitzchak's validation of being a hunter, being good at hunting, which for my definition doesn't just mean hunting, it means a man of action, it means a man who interacts with the world, I mean, a man who really is a survivor. There are many miles to being an Ish Yodei Atzayid, Ish Sadeh. And Yitzchak was the one designated by the parenting body to give Esav his validation so that Esav could feel satisfied in feeling accomplished for who he was and hopefully learn how to use those skills for the good. Which, okay, that, it's an old word to say that Yitzchak was loving Esav to bring him to the good. What I'm trying to say is that he was loving him as a man. And that's a very important thing because at the end of the day, your children have to decide who they are, not you. That's also what the Torah is telling us here. They became who they were. They decided who they were. Esav was this. Yaakov was this. It wasn't, uh, you think you think Yitzchak and Rivka said, Esav, you, you know what? We sat him down one day. You need to be a hunter. No, he decided. And the same thing with Yaakov. They didn't, I don't think they treated Yaakov any differently. Yaakov decided. And as Yaakov decided that he was an Isha Halim, he needed his mother's love. So yes, we need to do more of an exploration on why Yaakov needs his mother's love, but obviously it has to do with the fact that Yaakov needs nurturing because he needs to be encouraged into action, which is going to be uh, the tail end of our shear. He's a man that needs the validation and the pushing of his mother because he needs to come into his own. He's not a man of action. He's not a man of decision. He's a man who ponders. He's a man who thinks. He's a man of introspection. He's a planner, perhaps. But as a man of action, that's not his strength. And what the parenting decision is, is that you don't tell your children to be something else. What you do is you validate them for who they are. And then when they get confronted with choices that they need to make, that are not necessarily in line with who they are, because they feel good about who they are, they'll be able to have the strength to step out of what their comfort zone is and become the full person of who they need to be. So Asaph would need to be a more introspective a person who really does think about the future more and not just about surviving and about the immediate moment. But if he has his father's love, he'll be able to do that. And the same thing in reverse for Yaakov. So the Torah is doing a tremendous work for us by really explaining to us when the love of a parent is most critical. And I want to talk about love just for one more minute. Love is not just an emotion you feel. Love is an approach that you take in a relationship. When you decide that there's somebody that you care about, you think about what do they need from you in order for them to be the person that they ought to be according to their own decision, you know, according to the, what the person themselves decide. That's really the love that you need to give a person. Just to simply say, I love you, I care about you, I admire you, I respect you. You know, okay, that's nice, but that's not the love that really helps a person. The love that's really sustaining to a person, the love that really helps a person get to the next level is the love that they need that validates their strengths and gives them the strength to act more, not only on what their strengths are, but on what they need to fix or what they need to grow better in. And that's really... The job of parents, which is kind of exhausting to think about because as a parent, you're exhausted by the first years, by the responsibility of the, the financing for them and by the responsibility of 
you know, there are scrapes and bruises and everything else. That's then to think, well, really, as a parent, what I need to do is figure out when they're deciding who they are. Yeah, I can help them decide that. But once they've decided, then I need to validate that and help them to become a full Muslim person in whatever way they're lacking. That's a very daunting thing. But I think that there's another aspect that the reason that parents need to do this, and that is because families are meant to work together and collaborate together. When I say work together, I don't necessarily mean, you know, in a family business, in a yeshiva or anything else. I mean that family is meant to really bond with each other and really help each other through life. But again, the parents don't decide how the children collaborate. The children decide how the children collaborate. But by the parents being very clear on the strengths of each child, it sets the stage for the children to appreciate what the other one can provide and how they can collaborate together, how they can, uh, so to speak, be mashlim each other as well. And therefore, it's at this critical stage, and it's part of the same paragraph in the Torah, after the Torah tells us that they identified as who they were, and after the Torah tells us that Yitzchak and Rivka loved them respectively in their ways, that's when you immediately, in the same paragraph, Yaakov is making lentil soup, Esav comes home from the field and he's exhausted, and the Torah even makes it clear, that's why he's called Edom, and immediately Yaakov says, sell me your birthright. Now, does anybody really think that Asa was just like totally, pun intended, out to lunch that day, right? That he just completely didn't understand what was going on. It was like he was drunk and he didn't know he was about to sign away something major like the birthright. Of course not. He knew exactly what was going on. So what really gave Yaakov Avinu the understanding, this is the time to tell Asa, sell me your birthright. What is it about this? I believe that the answer is, that a Bechor has a fundamental responsibility to carry on the mission of the family. Bechor is a leader. For sure, that's what Mitzrayim held. And throughout the history, the Bechor always had a very fundamental role in the family. And the family looked up to the Bechor as the leader. In, in Chazal, in Mitzrayim, they used to worship the Bechor, in fact. Even the Trufim, there's a Chazal say that really the, the heads of firstborn children <clears throat> as idols, because the Bechor represents the responsibility, the one who's going to take charge of the next generation, uh, the one who's going to carry out the mission of leadership from the previous generation to the next generation. When Asaph comes home <coughs> and he says, listen, I'm famished. I need somebody to serve my Taivas and Yaakov, you're the one that has to serve my passions and my needs. <clears throat> Yaakov Avinu understands that this cannot be a leader because a leader cannot be controlled by his passions. And in fact, this leader is saying, your mission is to serve my passions. That's not leadership. Okay, you can call that a dictatorship if you want. You can call that an egocentric, narcissistic maniac if you want, but that's not a real leader. A leader is a person who's able to cerebrally, strategically plan and think and make decisions not according <clears throat> to his most base passion and temptation. Right here you have a hunter. Okay, I get it. He's exhausted and he's starving, but he can't open a box of crackers or a can of soup on his own. There was nothing else in the house. He couldn't take out a loaf of bread from the pantry. Asa is saying, no, no, Yaku, you don't understand. <clears throat> Your role 
this is what Esav is telling Yaakov, your role is to service whatever I immediately need. And Yaakov says, okay, look, I, I'm willing. <clears throat> I can do that, no problem. But if that's what you want from me, then what you're saying is you're abdicating thinking. You're abdicating what it means to be a leader. So I'm willing, <clears throat> I'm willing every time you come home starving, I'll give you soup, no problem. I'll make sure that your refrigerator is always well stocked. Uh, it's, it's, it's good. But at least recognize that you want nothing to do with real responsibility. Which Esther says, you're right. I don't. Responsibility and big picture thinking, as we know, you know, Olam Haba, something Esav, you know, had zero interest in. Uh, it's, not, it's, not, it's not part of his lexicon. He's not interested. Yaakov is brilliant in understanding exactly what Esav wants. And to that end, Yaakov is willing to become Esav's servant. And I would argue even that in Parshas Vayishlach, when Yaakov is trying to make Esav feel better about the broch, he's saying, listen, whatever gashmis you want, you can have. I'll gladly give you whatever you want. No problem. It's yours. You don't want the responsibility of what it really means to have a bracha, which is to be responsible for doing good with it, which is the number one missing message that children don't get from their parents, which is, yeah, you're talented, you have, you know, tremendous uh, mental gifts or physical gifts, whatever it is, but therefore you have responsibility of what you're doing with those gifts. That's something that Esau just doesn't want to hear about. So at the end of the day, Yaakov is absolutely on target for Esau's self-definition, and Yaakov understands 100% that the Bechorah is not for him. So why does he make him swear? Because the truth is that it's very sad. It's very sad that Esau doesn't want to live up to his greatness and to his real abilities, that he doesn't want to rein himself in and use his action-oriented personality, his man-of-doing-and-surviving personality, and use it for what it could be used for for the good. But it's not only sad because, you know, Esav doesn't end up well. It's sad because Esav is not being true to himself. So as much as a person is a person of action, a person of, 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 of the moment, he can't just willy-nilly ignore the greatness that he has, which Esav definitely had and he could have been had he chosen to undertake the responsibility of a Bukhar. Because at the end of the day, he is a Bukhar. And a Bukhar means you are the leader. He was born that way. That really was his role. But he advocated it. And so Yaakov, knowing that is Yaakov's brilliance, Esav has to swear because anytime a person changes their identity, it's not just an external transaction. It re it's required to make an internal commitment, usually one that's vocalized, as in, for example, marriage. Marriage is not just a kinyan. Marriage is a declaration. The man is committing, the woman is committing by and accepting the ring, she, they're committing to that transformation into marriage. Gerus has to be the same way. A person cannot become a ger without making a shvua. A person has to undertake the commitment of tariyak mitzvos at, at, at Maimon Harsi. And I, we also had a shvua. We had to, some say that it was Nasa Venishma, but the point is a person needs to make a declaration if they're changing away from their real identity. And that's why Yaakov Avinu is asking Esav to make a shvua. So the transaction is important, 
But equally important is that Esav is committing internally to not be the Bechor that he's destined to be. So, what I'd like to do now is discuss what happens. What is really the end of the story in terms of the brachos? And how does it carry out uh, in the story of Yitzchak and Rivka and Yitzchak sending in Yaakov to get the brachos? So I'm suggesting that Yitzchak and Rivka are collaborating, which means if we take that seriously for a moment, it means that neither Yitzchak nor Rivka is committed that only Yaakov or only Esav are going to get the brachos. Both Yitzchak and Rivka are wide open to the idea that it's either going to be Yaakov or Esav. They're both wide open to that idea. So even though you'll say, what do you mean? But Yitzchak is intending to give Esav the brachos. My suggestion is like this. In order to really be Mechabal the Brachos, a person needs to be one who's willing to take the responsibility of the Brachos. And let's be very clear about that for a moment. Pal Yisrael ultimately is the one who gets these Brachos. Now, there is no question that Pal Yisrael is the most blessed nation on earth. There's just no question about that. In every country that we've ever been, We've risen to the top in power, in money, and for sure in Chachma. And in general, that nation has risen to the top along with us. And when that nation has decided to kick out the Jews, that nation has gone into the gutter. No Jews, no world economy. And for a reality, I mean, in reality, countries have strategized ones that could, so to speak, tolerate Um, their own anti-Semitism and push it to the side enough to have the Jews. They did it strategically in order to gain the benefit of having the Jews in their country. Always has been that way. So there is no question that Klaus Yisrael is literally the most blessed people on earth. If you don't believe that, uh, you could just look at the state of Israel today and it's just mind-blowing. Everything about it is mind-blowing from where it's started and where it is today. And even today, the wealth per capita is just something outrageous. But we're also the most maligned, decimated, persecuted, Holocaust, genocide nation of all time. There's no question about that either. The dozens, uh, hundreds of times that we've been expelled from countries, right, stripped of our money, uh, of our rights, it's for sure we have suffered more than any other people throughout the millennia. We also existed longer than most people. So how do we, well, for the most blessed, <laughs> how do we end up with, you know, by the way, yellow stars were not invented in Germany. They were invented centuries before that people were giving the Jews stars or other forms of identification and, you know, putting them down. The answer is, that's what the brachos are. They're a responsibility. So for sure, we always have access to this tremendous good. But if we're not using the good for the right reasons and the right way, we get punished. I mean, the Torah is replete with Vayishman Yishun, Vayivat, you become fat and rebel, all, you know what, breaks loose. Or Vinoshantem Ba'aretz, you become complacent in the land, and again, out of the land. This is our story. It's why in the Kriyashma every day we're saying, 
That is the responsibility of a bracha. If you want a bracha, you have to take the responsibility of having a bracha. Now let me just say this very bluntly to you. You all have tremendous brachos. If you want to have a really blessed life, use your brachos for the good. Because otherwise, you're setting yourselves up to suffer the consequences that happen to any member of Yisrael, and for sure, to call Yisrael as a whole, for not using your brachas for the good. And using your brachas for the good means using it to make sure that you are a proper ben Torah, Yerei Shemayim, Shomer Torah and Mitzvahs, learner, but also fundamentally helping other people in all the ways that you can. And if you think that I'm not um, either serious or maybe rooted in reality, I'd like you to remember, I'd like you to write it down, and I'd like you to check in with me in 10 years and tell me how you think you did. Because I can pretty much guarantee you that if you really identify well, use your brachos well, and understand who you are well, and use all those brachos for the good, you will have tremendous good in your life. On every level. Material as well. And for sure in happiness. And if you don't, then chas v'shalom, the opposite is likely to happen because that is what happens to B'nai Yisrael because that is the responsibility of the brachos and that is what ufarakta ulo me'al tzavarecha means. And ultimately, Esav will overcome us kasher tarid. When we are not the people who are supposed to be, Esav does overcome us. That's the reality. So having the brachos is nothing but major response, nothing short of, it's obviously tremendous good, but it's nothing short of also major responsibility. And I'm proposing that both Rivka and Yitzchak are wide open to the idea that whoever steps up and shows that they are a person capable of taking the responsibility of the brachos, which means being both an ish, and in each tam, that is the person that should have the brachos. Whoever shows up as that person, that's the person who shayach to having the brachos. So, we're going to get to Yaakov in a minute and explain why Yaakov gets the brachos. But I don't think, and I think that this is a mistake that we make, I don't think for a minute that if Esau comes back from the field before Yaakov, and he's the one who gets there first with the delicious food, that Yitzchak says, oh, perfect. No. What would be a litmus test for Esav deserving the brachos? So I, I don't know. But I'm sure that Yitzchak would be asking Esav questions along the lines of, are you really willing to take this responsibility? Are you going to become a thinker? Are you going to become a leader? Are you going to become a responsibility taker and not just think about your immediate passions and what you want? I don't have any doubt. I don't know what that test looks like exactly today. Maybe Yitzchak doesn't uh, appreciate the food right away and Esav gets all impatient and Yitzchak says, you can't be impatient if you're going to be a leader. I don't know what that test looks like for Esav, but I 100% know exactly what it looked like for Yaakov. Yaakov did not want to go in Yaakov did not want to be a kimsatea be'enei He didn't want to look like a fool in front of his father. Rivka said, I'm telling you, go. Uh, take the, the animals like I'm commanding you to do. Here, come here, I'll get you dressed. I'll make the food for you. 
He didn't want to go. His test was, would he go? That was the first part of his test. And he did. And that turned him in to an ish yodea tzayid, ish sadeh. And we know that for a fact, because Yaakov Avinu says very clearly in Lavan's house, achivani baramaus, and I know all manners of trickery and ways to manipulate people, and he does. The question is, was he ever willing to act on it? And the answer is, in the case of the brachos, he was. So when Yitzchak says, hakol kol Yaakov esav, it doesn't matter if it's Yaakov or Esav standing in front of him. Whoever standing in front of him, if he represents the Kol Yaakov, which is what I'm saying Yitzchak would have demanded to figure out if Esav possesses a Kol Yaakov, which obviously represents an Ishtam Yoshevo Halim, right, a man who's very impassioned about what he cares about, what he thinks about. Uh, kol is, is an expression uh, not only of what we feel, but it's also an expression of our, of our, of our deepest um, thinking desires. So then he would actually be the right person. If Esav is representing the Kol Kol Yaakov, whether it's the, the Kihikra Hashem because he's calling the name of Hashem, or just the way that he's speaking to Yitzchak, whatever it is about the Kol, if it would be Esav, that's okay with Yitzchak. And by the way, that would be okay with Rivka too. And if Yaakov doesn't go in, and if Yaakov doesn't stand up to his test, it's okay if Esav comes in and he's the one who measures up. That's okay with Rivka too. So at the end of the day, both Yitzchak and Rivka are agreeing that what they need is somehow these boys to collaborate together. They need one of them to show up using their kochos in the ultimate forms of responsibility, which is what brachos require. And so one more piece where we see this very clearly. Some of you have heard this question from me before, and I almost gave you the answer already. But at the end, after the Torah tells us that Esav hates his brother because of the bracha that his, his father gave him. And Esav says in his heart, which is another failure of the, of the personality of Esav, but more on that another time, Esav says, I'll kill Yaakov, my brother. And then the Torah says, Rivka became informed. Esav wants to kill you. He's, he's dying to kill you. Listen to my voice. Run away to Lavan. And you should stay with him a few days until the anger of your brother subsides. And this is the puzzle. Until the anger of your brother subsides. And he forgets that which you did to him. And I'll send for you. I'll bring you back. Why should I lose both of you in the same day? So what is the amazing thing that Rivka just said to Yaakov? Run away so that Esau forgets what you did to him. And you can imagine that a normal son like Yaakov would look at his mother and say, are you out of your mind? You got me dressed. I'm 63 years old. You gave me my brother's garments that he kept with you in the house. You gave me all the food. You told me I'm commanding you. I said, no, no, please, my father... And you're sitting here telling me what I did to Esau? What about what you did to Esau? Right? What's the answer? That's what responsibility is. No matter who pushes you and who prods you, you can't say, they made you do it. And that's really what you all need to buy into tonight. If you want to be a Yaakov, if you want to be 
zochet to the brachas of your life and the, the brachas of Klal Yisrael, you need to take responsibility for your life. And you can't blame your parents, you can't blame your abeim, you can't blame your chavrusas, or your lack of chavrusas. You can't blame anyone. Your life is your choice. Even when people are really pushing your buttons and asking you to do the things that you exactly don't want to do, you make the choice. And if you don't take responsibility for your choice, then your choice is simply not yours. You don't get the benefit. You don't get the bracha. And you're abdicating your actual responsibility. So in order for all of us to walk away like a Yaakov Avinu, we have to really, really understand what it means to take responsibility. Because just understand what happens to Yaakov Avinu because of this little thing called, okay, I'll run away and I'll take responsibility. For 20 years, he's by one of the worst people of all time called Lavan. He doesn't sleep. He's cheated hundreds of times. He almost loses his entire family several times. And then, to top it off, because he wasn't home for 20 years, he loses his 22 years, he loses his son Yosef for 22 years. And he never once blamed his mother. Now, who here would be capable of that? He never once turns around and says, it's all Rivka's fault. I can't believe I'm in this mess. He doesn't get to marry the wife that he wants. She dies early, and the list is endless. All because he takes responsibility for the brachos. But, by the way, he happens to be the Bechir Shabbos. He's the one that has Yud Shvatim, because he's the one that takes responsibility. And what great parents do is nudge their children in the direction of responsibility, but what great children do is undertake the responsibility of their identity, their mission, and fulfill it 100%. So, the bottom line is, it's not the parent's job to interpret the prophecy of Viravya Avot Sa'ir. Rivka knows the Nevoah. Yitzchak Avinu knows the Nevoah. But parents have to understand, just because you know either Kiv Yitzchak Yikar Lechazar, Avinu knew, and he's still grappling when to marry Yitzchak off, or just because Yitzchak and Rivka know the Nevoah of Viravya Avot Sa'ir, just like Avram Avinu knew the Brisbane Epsarim and the Gama Sagashi Avot Danunochi, and everybody knew all the Nevuos. In fact, that's why Rivka is saying Lama Zanochi. What Rivka is saying Lama Zanochi has nothing to do with her physical pain about why she exists. She's saying, how can I possibly fulfill my role if this is what the pregnancy is? Rivka knows she's supposed to produce the Klal Yisrael. I can speak more about that another time, but she's not saying Lama Zanochi, like, oh, I wish I wasn't alive if this is what it means to have kids, or, you know, this is just, this pain is not worth it. She's saying, I understand that what I'm doing in having children with Yitzchak is cosmically important. They know about the Brisbane Epsarim. They know about the brachos at the Akedah, which is Kivarecha Varecha you know, so many brachos. Which was earlier told to Avramavini. This pregnancy, which just doesn't make any sense, which has this pain, which seems to be so weird and unusual, this is what's supposed to produce this great nation? And the answer is, yeah, you have a complex thing going on between you that, you know, it could be that Yaakov and Esau are going to work out, meaning these two kids are going to work out. It could be not. But it's not the job of the parents to figure out what the ultimate outcome is, just like Chizki Amel can't decide not to have Nasha as a son. So whatever the Nevuah means, what's their job is to push their children into being who they are as much as they can and let their children decide. That's their job.
And the only way to give the brachos is to the one that shows up to be fully responsible. I think I answered all the questions. Any questions? Well, yes. What changed in Esau's mind? Why did he want to go the easily? And later on, he gets all mad that Yaakov took the brachos. Yeah, uh, that's an excellent question, regardless of what I'm saying, right? Yeah. Yeah. So it would. First of all, depend if you understand brachos and bechorah as the same thing, which is a question. He seems to understand it's similar, but not necessarily the same. As opposed to that trick explains this, right? In other words, if selling the bechorah means you don't get the brachos, so then it's not it's, uh, he, he tricked me the first time; he deserves the brachos. Um, but I think that in Esav's mind, there's such a thing as having power without responsibility. Just like he's saying feed me like a camel, and you, Yaakov, have to do it, he thinks that there's such a thing as, yeah, listen, I'm the, I mean, like a lot of dictators think, right? Like I mentioned before, there's such a thing as having power without responsibility. It's not true. It's not what real responsibility is. It's not even what brachos really are, because we know brachos only from the tzad of a Kodesh Baruch Hu, which by definition is a Kodesh Baruch Hu is a metiv, and the job of a metiv is to be metiv, and the one you're metiv to should also be metiv. That's, that's why we have these responsibilities. So I think that Esav is under the delusion that you're entitled to power without responsibility. And the sad truth is that he does get some of that. right? Because when, when I say get some of that, not fully, but when we fail, he does become temporarily in charge. You know, now, really, the reason for that is to get us to, to be who we're supposed to be, not because he's really entitled. But uh, but I think he does live under that, that delusion, I think. But, of course, it's not true. But if he would have shown up in a different way, then maybe he could have gotten the Rachos. Yes, Yaakov Haim. Is there any place for Esau uh, in B'nai And is his uh, asking for Rachos at the end in the I think that, okay, so I think what you're asking is, is there any place for Esau within Kalisol after Yaakov gets the Brachos? For sure. No question. What the capacity is, don't know exactly, but certainly we know the brothers needed help. For sure. Um, would Dina have been a good solution uh, to bring that through Esau into Kalisol? Maybe. Um, of course, it would depend on Esau and Dina. Um, and and for sure, the fact that you know whatever happens with Shimon and Dina and Shimon is a problem for Klal Yisrael, major problem now and later for Klal Yisrael. So I think that the answer is yes. And I think if, had he you know chosen to stay in Eretz Canaan, maybe it could have happened. Maybe he would have gone down into Mitzrayim. It could have happened. Would it be Bnei Esav or Bnei Yisrael? It would be Bnei Yisrael. Uh, I, I don't know what we would do with the drasha of Kivi Yitzchak Yikarl Chazara. But I think it will be B'nai Israel. I think, but I'm not sure. I don't know. I don't know that. You know, maybe he could. You know, maybe Ephraim and Menashe. You know, instead of Ephraim and Menashe, I mean, maybe. Maybe. Rabbi. Yes. So we said that um, Yitzchak was going to give the the brachas to either Yaakov or Esau, whoever was the one to step up and and take the role of responsibility, right? Yes. But wasn't originally the plan for, for both of them to have a role together? We're supposed to be like partners? I don't know. It may be. Uh, it could even be that the brachos attained uh, properly without subterfuge would have allowed for that. Maybe there could have been a sharing of some sort. Uh, but of course that didn't happen. It was just a competition. 
Okay. Um, I don't. I don't know for sure. It's a fair question. I, I'm open to either possibility. Why, why does it have to be a secret from Yitzchak? Because otherwise he's not really acting like Esau. Otherwise he's presenting as, as Yaakov. Right? Rabbi Shuz asking a very nice question. He's saying, why does he have to trick him? Why can't he just say, listen, I'm here to take the brachos. Esau doesn't deserve them. That's not really acting like Esau. Acting like Esau is being able to pull this off as though he is Esau. In a way that's somewhat believable. Which, you know, I think Yadayim de Esau wasn't only about the fur. I think, you know, he, he pulled it off enough. It has to be a day at Sayed. So why why is that necessary for, for him to be able to trick and, and fool like this? Because it seems like that's a negative quality, right? It's 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 um it's a skill necessary for survival. Yeah, sometimes we that's exactly what we need, and and we have to be able to act that way when necessary. Obviously, prudently, and that's not a general mode of operation. But when necessary, we have to be able to. Just like if Yaakov doesn't have that skill, he does not escape Lavan's house. Then we don't have a quality stroke. Yes. It's and I, very nice that they both think they, that they have potential, but we have a prophecy. And now they will say it. Mm-hmm. So how can you trust me that it could be itself? The bottom line is, we don't know what it means, meaning in what capacity. I don't, I, I don't know. I, I still don't know. You know, that's the thing with Nebuus, is that they're very much open to the free choice of people later, right? So I don't know. I don't know what it has to mean. In other words, it could be that Esav gets the brachos, and as the Baal HaBrachos of, let's say, Olam Hazat, right, depending on how you understand what the brachos might have been if they were Esav, he would have to serve Yaakov's purposes. Like, let's call it Zvulun and uh, Yisachar. Maybe. In other words, the point is, is that we can't interpret the Nebuos. That's part of the problem with, you know, everybody predicting Mashiach. We, we don't know for sure what the Nebuah means. So the question that Rabbi asked, that how could Yitzhak give the uh, was out of that? Correct. I'm saying the answer to that question is, we don't get to decide what a Nebuah means. We have to do what's right in front of us in our areas of responsibility and let HaKadosh Baruch Hu take care of what HaKadosh Baruch Hu means, so to speak. Exactly. I know it's not cool because we all want to think, you know, this is what we spoke about several, a couple months ago, but that there's, you know, a target date when Mashiach is what's coming. We just need to figure out what date that is. Not sure, I don't think. So what's the point of it, That's what we spoke about last time. The point of Nebuah is that it, it, it gives you a general sense and a general direction. And the more you work together with the Kodesh Baruch and make good choices, the more um, hadracha you get on, yes, I'm doing the right thing. Like in this case, you know, we're happy to interpret Veravya Avot Sa'ir, you know, as 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 Yaakov gets the brachos, but that's only because Yaakov did the right thing. You know, but he had, you could say he had Ashkacha that that helped him with that. Any other questions? Yes, Zachary. Why did he support Yitzchak? Yitzchak wanted 
he, I, I, the way I'm saying it is that Yitzchak wanted whichever one was both Yitzchak, the right combination to get the brachos. He was willing that it should be Esav if Esav was going to show up the right way. I, like I said before, I don't know exactly what Yitzchak would have done when Esav came back if Yaakov hadn't come in, but I'm fairly confident that he would have asked Esav to show some demonstration of being able to be a real leader. So what does that litmus test look like? I don't know. But seemingly it's coming to Esav. So I understand why it's a starting point. Right? The only question is, how could it possibly make sense? Right? In other words, he is the older one, right? So that makes sense. But the question is, is he really worthy? I, I believe that we all imagine that Yitzchak would not have demanded any worthiness, and I'm arguing otherwise. Just like Rivka is pushing Yaakov in a way to make him worthy, I believe that Yitzchak would have pushed Esav to make him worthy. He would have had to pass the test. If he wouldn't have, then I don't think he would have given him the brachas. That's the way I would see it. Rabbi can also say that like for a uh, kind of counterpart kind of thing, that Rivka grew up in a household where Ramos was the thing, and Yitzchak grew up the opposite. So that he would try to pull out some innocence from, from Esau. Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly what that test would be. Yeah, exactly, right. That would be sort of the structure. Mm -hmm. What do we think? All right. Pleasure, everyone. This has been a Platforms podcast. Please share it with your friends. If you can think of one person to send it to, please take the time. It truly is the best way to help us out. If you have any comments or suggestions, please go and email platformspodcast at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you.